hello and official welcome to Core Volunteer Training, which is a weekly webinar program of the Citizens Climate Lobby. This, pro this provides CCL supporters, especially newer volunteers and emerging group leaders, <clears throat> with really easy access to training opportunities on topics relating to climate change and effective climate advocacy. I'm your host, Tamara Staten, and I'm really glad to have you all here and especially excited to welcome anybody who is new to the CCL space and or to our group leading space. Tonight's training is all about our policy agenda in CCL, presented by the fantastic Dana Nucitelli, who's got a wonderful last name to say. Just try it yourself right now out loud because you're all muted. He's going to do his best to help you understand our four policy areas. Again, feel free to follow along with tonight's slides that Isabella is going to drop into the chat when she gets a moment, and you can check those out as well. So let me introduce Dana Nucitelli. He is an environmental scientist. Well, first of all, at CCL, he is our research coordinator. He's also an environmental scientist with degrees in astrophysics and physics from UC Berkeley and UC Davis. I can't even imagine getting a degree in astrophysics, Dana. You are my rock star hero, science hero. He's also a climate journalist for skepticalscience.com and The Guardian and Yale Climate Connections. And he is also a NCSE 2016 Friends of the Earth Award winner, as well as author of 10 peer-reviewed climate science papers and author of the book, Climatology versus Pseudoscience. So I will let him present his whack-a-mole slide, and I'm not joking, he does have a whack-a-mole slide in just a moment, but let me tell you the order of things, order of operations for this evening. We're gonna start by talking about, you guessed it, our policy agenda, and then go into the details about each of those four areas, starting with carbon pricing, moving on to permitting reform. Then we will dive into building electrification and efficiency and round out the policy discussion on healthy forests at which point we will give you opportunities to ask your questions and have robust discussion if you would like to do that. So with that, I will pass it to Dana himself. Take it away, Dana. Okay, thank you, Tamara. And hi, everybody, I'm Dana. Um, so yeah, this is one of my favorite topics to talk about, our policy agenda, um, because as Tamara mentioned, uh, my first activity in climate change was at skepticalscience.com, which is a climate myth debunking database website. And so basically what we did was when we would hear a new climate myth, we would look at the peer reviewed literature and see what the research said about it and then write uh, usually a debunking of that particular myth. And so, you know, we would do that for a whole lot of myths, but the myths would always keep coming back like you would debunk it and then just like a year later, some other prominent person would come out and be like, oh, you know, global warming is not happening. Or, you know, they bring a snowball to the floor of the Senate and you just have to keep whacking on those moles and like they just keep coming back. And so, you know, whacking the moles, it's kind of satisfying. But then after a while, it gets kind of frustrating that the, the moles don't go away. They just keep coming back. And so, you know, at some point I decided I wanted to stop whacking those moles and start working on some policy solutions. And so that's why I got involved in CCL and that's why I like talking about these solutions that we're gonna talk about tonight. 
So uh, we always like to start with carbon pricing. That's what CCL focused on exclusively for like 15 years, and it's still a central part of our policy agenda. So we advocate for a carbon fee and dividend with a carbon border adjustment mechanism to lower emissions and deliver abundant, affordable clean energy to Americans. Uh, we have a nice training page. If you go to cclusa.org slash carbon-pricing-training, you can check out our carbon fee and dividend training page. But the idea is that uh, it's really important to put a price on carbon because that gets right to the source of the problem, the climate pollution that is causing climate change, and it hits every sector of the economy because you're just going straight to that source of the pollution. And it's just generally a good thing to make polluters pay for their pollution. And so that's what we're doing by putting a price on carbon so that uh, fossil fuel industries have to pay for the carbon that they're emitting when their fossil fuel products are burned. And because that's hitting every single sector of the economy right at the source, it's potentially the single largest, most effective climate uh, policy solution uh, that we can do because um, it doesn't just hit like transportation or just buildings, it gets all across the uh, economy, every sector, and uh, hits those uh, sources of climate pollution uh, at their source. And so another part of our policy, we call it carbon cash back or carbon dividends. The idea is that you put the price on the carbon pollution and that generates revenue. And then the government takes that revenue and sends it back in equally sized payments to all American households. And so if you do it that way, that's uh, those cash back payments are enough to basically cover the increased costs of about 85% of American households. Um, it's only the highest carbon emitting households that have a net cost because they're, they're the ones that have the largest carbon footprints and that also generally tends to be the wealthiest uh, households, the ones that use the most energy. And so as a result, it's 95% of the lower and middle income households uh, actually get a net revenue or break even from this policy, this uh, carbon uh, fee and dividend with this carbon cash back. Uh, as a result, because lower income households, they have a smaller carbon footprint, and so they're getting uh, this net income from this carbon fee and dividend policy. Um, there was a study that found that it would uh, both decrease income inequality in the United States and raise 1.6 million Americans, including half a million children, above the poverty line if we were to implement this policy. So it's got some nice benefits in addition to being very effective at reducing our climate pollution. And then there's this um, policy um, aspect that we call a carbon border adjustment mechanism, a CBAM, which is fun to say. Um, so the idea there is that we actually already have a very clean, low carbon manufacturing in the United States. Um, even though we don't have a carbon price in place, we do have uh, some really good regulations and some good clean manufacturing as a result. And so when we import pro products from other countries that don't have such clean manufacturing, um, they basically have the benefit of not having to comply with uh, similar regulations. And so their stuff is cheap and it's dirty and then they have an advantage. And so a carbon border adjustment mechanism basically puts a price on the extra carbon uh, content of the stuff that's being imported so that they have to pay uh, play on an even paying, uh, play on an even playing field by paying that cost of that extra carbon. 
Um, so the idea is that while we're reducing our carbon pollution in the United States, we don't want to give uh, other countries that aren't doing the same thing a free ride for their dirty high carbon importing products. Um, so this is an uh, aspect of our policy that's actually got some bipartisan interest, um, either doing a carbon border adjustment or a carbon tariff. So we're going to do a little trivia question for you guys. Uh, you can pop your guesses in the chat if you want. Uh, the question is, which country had the world's highest carbon price as of March of last year at $156 per ton of carbon dioxide? Was it Sweden, Uruguay, Canada, Liechtenstein, or carbon taxistan? So I'll give you guys minutes. Uh, think of your guesses, which country you think it is with the highest carbon price. Um, if you're interested in you know, put, making your guess public, feel free to put it in the chat. Hey, Dana, are you going to put up the map of where carbon taxistan is so that we can all be really clear on where that is? <laughs> Well, you're kind of giving away uh, my my multiple choice here. Um, that unfortunately, carbon taxistan is an imaginary country. Although I think we would all like to live there if it were real. But let's get to the answer. The answer is actually surprisingly to me, Uruguay has a $156 per ton carbon price. Uh, Sweden also has a very high carbon price, but not quite as high as Uruguay. Uh, Canada has a national carbon price that will get up to $170 per ton, but not until 2030. So Uruguay is currently ahead of them. Uh, Liechtenstein uh, also has a carbon price and is also just very fun to say. And carbon taxistan is a fictional country. So no, Tamara, I can't put it on a map. All right, let's move to our next policy area, which is clean energy permitting reform. Uh, really important because we're trying to build this clean energy economy uh, and build stuff fast. And so to do that, we need permitting reform to make that possible by unlocking clean energy infrastructure that's waiting to be built and getting that clean energy to American households and businesses. Uh, again, we got some training pages, uh, ccusa.org slash permitting dash training. It's kind of the basic version. And then if you add a dash advanced to that, you can get to our advanced training page on permitting reform. So one issue here uh, is that after the Inflation Reduction Act was passed in August 2022, the ginormous climate bill that was uh, passed into law, uh, there was an analysis by this team of energy modelers at Princeton called Princeton Repeat. And they found that if we don't start building our clean energy infrastructure and especially our electrical transmission infrastructure faster, then that will constrain uh, how much of the potential of the Inflation Reduction Act we can realize, and we'll only be able to achieve about 50% or so of the potential carbon pollution reduction from that policy. So it's very important, but let's take a step back and just talk about what permitting is. Uh, and a permit's basically just an authorization from a government, uh, be it local or state or federal government, to begin work on a construction project. And permits are really important. They protect communities and workers and the environment from undue harm from the construction and the operation of a given project. Um, so they serve an important purpose, uh, but obtaining permits, it adds time and it adds expense to all kinds of projects. And so you have to strike the right balance where you're doing a thorough permitting job and making sure you're protecting 
communities and workers in the environment, but not taking so long that you're really significantly delaying, uh, especially these clean energy infrastructure projects that we're trying to build quickly so that we can transition to a clean economy. And so if we go back to uh, the electrical transmission infrastructure that I talked about, right now we're only expanding that infrastructure at 1% per year, uh, which is very slow. In some past decades, we've done it about twice as fast, but it's just uh, kind of slowed down over the past decade or so, and we need to speed that up. Uh, because some research has showed that in order to uh, really get our, our uh, electrical grid clean and connected to a lot of wind and solar energy, especially, we need to triple our capacity to transmit clean electricity by 2050. But right now, transmission line projects are taking about a decade on average to complete. Uh, there have been some uh, examples of really big transmission lines that are taking about 15 years to complete um, that are just finally getting to completion that started, you know, in the basically, you know, early 2000s. And so we're kind of erring on the side of taking too long in the permitting process at this point. So we want to speed that up. So what we're trying to achieve with permitting reform is to streamline the efficiency of the permitting process, uh, which really importantly doesn't mean we're going to green light every project. It does mean we're going to try to get to the final approval or denial, that ultimate yes or no decision, in a more expedient manner. Even if a project is going to get uh, rejected for environmental or other reasons, it's better to get to that conclusion earlier so that we don't waste a bunch of money on projects that are just sitting in these pipelines waiting to get the approval or rejection for a long, long time. So we're doing that because we want to build this infrastructure faster so we can get lots of clean wind and solar and other types of energy connected to the grid. Uh, and then the benefit of that, in addition to reducing uh, greenhouse gas emissions, is that we can improve our energy and grid reliability and also a security and affordability uh, because uh, the more uh, clean energy, that's also cheap energy that we connect to the grid, kind of the more stable uh, the grid is and more reliable the grid is and more affordable our electricity is. In the process, we all make, also want to make sure that communities aren't cut out of the process because we're like where we're shortening, shortening the permitting process. Uh, we don't want to short it, shorten it at the expense of people being able to provide input on projects that are going to directly impact them and their communities. Uh, so in the process, we actually want to bolster community involvement uh, because if we can get people uh, involved in the permitting process up front, then the whole process should go more smoothly. And over the long term, it should take less time and avoid lawsuits that can really slow down the permitting process, uh, for example. Um, so that's uh, it's actually permitting reform is really important for environmental justice um, because while so there has been some opposition from some environmental justice groups to some proposed permitting reform deals in the past. Um, but it's important to consider that uh, right now we have all this fossil fuel infrastructure in place that's causing a bunch of air pollution and a bunch of adverse health effects and a bunch of deaths. Uh, right now, air pollution causes about a quarter of a million deaths per year in the United States. And that's especially in disadvantaged communities located near, uh, for example, coal power plants and other point sources of this fossil fuel air pollution. And so if we take uh, too long to build the clean infrastructure that will replace this dirty fossil fuel infrastructure, then that slow, per slow permitting process could actually result in thousands of needless premature deaths that could have been avoided if we had built the clean energy faster. 
another important point is that 93% of proposed new electricity capacity that's kind of waiting to be built right now is wind and solar, um, because wind and solar are the cheapest new sources of electricity right now, um, especially solar energy is very, very popular because um, it's really cheap and it's really clean and pretty much everybody likes it. And so that's what's kind of waiting to be built. And so if we could speed up the permitting process, that is what would most benefit from that. Another important point is that global fossil fuel demand is about to peak. We're very, very close. Um, again, because we're building so much uh, wind and solar and electric cars and everybody's trying to reduce their emissions. And so kind of the demand for new fossil fuels is just starting to wane a little bit. And so again, if you speed up the permitting process, uh, what benefits the most is these clean energy sources that everybody wants to build as opposed to the fossil fuels that everybody's starting to move away from. So yeah, if we can speed up the permitting process, it mostly benefits clean energy. Uh, that's also illustrated in this chart, which is again from that uh, Princeton report, uh, where here we're looking at how much coal the US and the United States is going to burn in 2030 under a few different scenarios. Uh, the red bar here is if we hadn't passed the Inflation Reduction Act uh, about a year and a half ago. And then this gray bar is post-Inflation Reduction Act having been passed, if we continue to build our electrical transmission infrastructure at that same 1% per year rate that we have been over the past decade, you can see that bar is actually bigger than the red bar, meaning we would be burning more coal in 2030 than if we hadn't passed the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, which is because the Inflation Reduction Act also encourages us to electrify our buildings and install like heat pumps and electric stoves and things like that and transition from gasoline powered cars to electric cars. And so you're just using more electricity in 2030, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. And so if you can't connect a bunch of new wind and solar to the grid, then what ends up uh, supplying all that increased demand for electricity is fossil fuels, coal, and natural gas. And so it kind of backfires that you're trying to transition to this clean economy and you end up burning more coal as a result. But you can see in these three bars on the right, that's if we build our transmission infrastructure faster up to 1.5 or 2% or even a little bit faster per year. Now the bars start to get smaller and smaller. And so now you're actually burning less coal in 2030, even though you're using more electricity because that electricity is being supplied by solar and wind and some other clean sources. And so that's why it's important to do permitting reform and get this transmission infrastructure built faster so that we don't end up burning more coal and polluting these communities that are stuck uh, living near coal power plants. So how do we actually speed up the permitting process? Uh, there's a few different avenues. Um, some of them we've already succeeded in. We passed the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill a few years ago and the Inflation Reduction Act, uh, we've had, which had some law changes and some funding to build transmission projects. Um, so those have made some progress in speeding things up. Um, there are also executive actions, things that the White House and federal agencies can do, uh, including the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, uh, which is uh, trying to pass, uh, implement some new rulemakings that will speed up the permitting process, um, given what they have the authority to do. And then there's things that Congress can do, uh, including potentially giving FERC more authority and more things that FERC can do. Um, so that's what CCL works on. We work on getting Congress to pass laws that make uh, climate solutions work. 
And so we're trying to get them to uh, pass a good permitting reform package that will improve uh, the permitting process and make it more expedient and efficient. So specifically, we're trying to, in this kind of permitting reform package, uh, get things that included that add to our capacity to transmit clean electricity, because again, that's kind of the key bottleneck, uh, preventing us from building lots and lots of uh, solar and wind energy. We're trying to speed up the approval of clean energy projects that are waiting to be built, all that solar and wind, uh, and also batteries that are just kind of waiting to be connected to the grid. And we're also um, trying to preserve communities' ability to make their voices heard on the environmental and other impacts of proposed energy projects uh, that will directly impact them. So let's shift to our next policy area, which is building electrification and efficiency, uh, which is important because by upgrading our homes and buildings to electric and making them more energy efficient, we can save money and eliminate a major source of carbon and indoor air pollution. Again, we've got some trainings at cclusa.org slash building dash electrification dash training for the basic version and building dash electrification dash advanced for the advanced version. And fortunately here, we already got the main law passed that we need, which again was the Inflation Reduction Act. It had some great funding for home electrification and efficiency measures. And so there's a really great tool called the Rewiring America Savings Calculator which kind of tells uh, homeowners what they qualify for in terms of home electrification and efficiency rebates. Uh, we have a short URL that goes to that at cclusa.org slash ira-calc, uh, or you can just Google Inflation Reduction Act uh, calculator. And so you just put in your zip code, homeowner status, household income, tax filing status, and household size, and click the button, and then it tells you all the different rebates you qualify for. Uh, for your home under the Inflation Reduction Act, whether each one is a tax credit or an upfront discount, how big it is, and then when it will become available or if it is already available. So it's a super, super, super useful tool. It's kind of the best educational tool about the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, you can kind of share it with everybody who might be interested in electrifying and or making their home more efficient. And this tells them exactly the different uh, financial benefits that they will qualify for, which is pretty awesome. And so specifically, uh, there are two main sources of energy and thus uh, greenhouse gas emissions from homes. Uh, you can see them in this chart from the Energy Information Administration. Uh, so the size of the bar is the amount of energy used uh, in a home from each of these. And so the two big ones are space heating and water heating. And then dark blue is electricity, which is good. We're trying to electrify stuff because we have relatively clean electricity. And then the other colors are fossil fuels. And you can see there's especially a lot of light blue, which is natural gas. We have lots of natural gas furnaces heating our homes and lots of natural gas water heaters. And so ideally we want to replace those with electric alternatives to reduce emissions and stop burning fossil fuels in our homes. And the good news there is that there is a technology that does all of that, and it's called a heat pump. And so heat pumps are pretty amazing. Uh, basically, you use electricity to move heat from one place to another. Um, so they can move heat from inside the house to outside the house or outside the house to inside the house. And so they do the job of both a furnace and an air conditioner. You don't need both units. You just need one heat pump. 
and they do this very, very efficiently. They're about three to five times more efficient than most current fossil fuel heating systems uh, because it's a lot easier to move heat around than it is to generate it by burning stuff. And when you burn stuff, you also lose uh, quite a bit of heat to the surrounding air. We call that waste heat. And so when you're wasting uh, that energy, that is quite inefficient. And so because heat pumps are so efficient, they save energy and they also reduce emissions even with today's electric grid. Um, you know, people sometimes ask like, will we still have some fossil fuels? We have some coal electricity and some natural gas electricity. So don't we have to wait to get rid of that fossil fuel electricity for uh, electric appliances to be an improvement? Uh, and the answer is no, because they're so energy efficient, even on the current grid, which has some coal and gas, heat pumps still reduce emissions and the grid is just going to get cleaner and cleaner over time as we connect more and more solar and wind and other clean sources of electricity to the grid. And then weatherization of homes is also a great thing to do. Up to 20% of the money spent on our home electricity bills uh, is wasted in the average American home just from air leaking out of uh, the, our, our, our houses uh, into the outside. And so if you weatherize your home, that can reduce energy waste and energy bills, uh, which involves doing things like uh, adding insulation and sealing cracks and improving windows and measures like that. Um, it's especially beneficial for low-income households that tend to live in older, draftier homes. Um, so there's uh, been uh, research indicating that low-income households could save up to 35% on their energy bills through these kinds of weatherization projects. So we're going to take a little break and ask you guys another question. Uh, which of these home electrification and efficiency solutions have you already implemented? And which of these are you excited to potentially make to your home? Uh, which these include installing a heat pump space heater, a heat pump water heater, that's loud, uh, an induction stove, uh, weatherizing your home, doing things like installing uh, insulation and upgrading windows, uh, there's also solar panels and battery storage systems. Uh, if you can afford those, those are great ways to uh, improve the energy efficiency and uh, or improve the energy and uh, reduce emissions from your home. And also upgrading your gasoline powered car to an electric car. So in the chat, uh, if you've done any of these, uh, maybe let everybody know, or if there's some of these that you're kind of interested or excited in, uh, type those into the chat and Tamara, uh, maybe you can read out if you see any good examples in the chat there. Yeah, I can. So there's some excitement around having solar panels um, after college um, and an electric car. Nice. Um, <clears throat> heat pump and a water heater, heat pump space heater. I don't know if this is a wish or something they've already done. We have a heat pump space and water heater. We just re-insulated our attic and we have a little... Um, a little induction hot plate that's mm. like 70 or 80 bucks right next to our gas stove. So um, that's pretty fun to use um, when the electricity bills aren't too high. Like we use it not during peak hours, actually. So it's kind of cool. Tanner, um, you and I are like a home electrification twinsies because I also recently got heat pump space heater, heat pump water heater, uh, installed installation in my attic, and I used the single um, induction. Oh my gosh, look right. at us, Dana. <laughs> we are electrification twinsies. Yeah. Um, Latina's uh, 
and excited to get all of them. Um, and solar panels on 80% of their house, EV charged off solar panels, got them now. Nice. Electric F-150. Ooh, I would like that too. It would be nice. I'd like to afford an electric, um, oh my gosh, what is that company that has a super fancy electric trucks? Rivian. Um, Rivian. I would love a Rivian one day. I don't know if I can work for CCL and have a Rivian, but I don't know. I know some Your salary. <laughs> uh, yeah. So there's some uh, good wish lists and some people taking some great action as well. So. Cool. Excellent. Glad to hear everybody's excited about this stuff. So then let's move on to our last but not least policy area, which is healthy forests. Uh, so to solve climate change, we need America's forests to pull carbon out of the air. Uh, we support preserving and expanding forests, climate smart forestry, and advocating for increasing urban forests with a focus on neighborhoods that are negatively impacted by a lack of tree equity, which we'll talk about here in a few minutes. Again, we've got training pages at cclusa.org slash forest training. Uh, for the basic version or for the advanced version, uh, just add a dash advanced onto the end of that URL. And so forests do a lot of great stuff. Uh, they have the potential to achieve significant carbon reductions from the carbon that they pull out of the air as they grow. Uh, they can also both mitigate climate change by pulling that carbon out of the air, and they can also help us adapt to climate change because they provide shade and other cooling services that we're going to need as the planet keeps heating up. And so they've got lots of what we call co-benefits like that, not just pulling that carbon out of the air, but also uh, shading, cooling, also lots of health and both physical and mental health benefits associated with being around trees. So trees are pretty awesome. Uh, they also provide lots of potential coalition partners because there are also a lot of other climate and environmental groups that are working in uh, forest and tree related areas. And so you can kind of combine and work with them. And there's bipartisan support for uh, tree legislation because everybody loves trees. Uh, and actually, as a research person, that's a question that I wanted to test. Like, how do you know that everybody loves trees? And so... I came up with a thought experiment and I asked myself, who is the individual who is least likely to love trees? And I think all lovers of great literature and cinema will agree that is obviously the Grinch, because as we know, the Grinch's heart was two sizes too small. And so then I asked myself, uh, okay, well, let's look for some evidence to see how the Grinch feels about trees. And then all of the available evidence indicates that even the Grinch loves trees ipso facto, everybody loves trees, case closed. And so when I talk about uh, healthy forests, I like to use this uh, bathtub analogy where the bathtub is like our atmosphere and the water in the bathtub is greenhouse gases in the atmosphere and there's too much and they're overflowing already and they're doing all this damage to the surrounding uh, bathroom. And so how do you solve that problem? And so there's a few different categories of ways to solve this problem. Uh, first, you need to turn down and eventually turn off the faucet so there's not more water continually being added to the tub. Um, so that is what we're doing when we reduce emissions, uh, which we're doing through our policies of carbon pricing and permitting reform and building electrification and efficiency, getting at those uh, sources that add more greenhouse gases to the atmosphere, more water to the tub, 
and slowing those down, eventually stopping them. And then the other thing you can do is open up the drain and let the water that's in the tub come out of it. Uh, so you're pulling the water out of the tub, pulling the greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. That's what natural climate solutions do, including healthy forests. They're pulling the existing uh, carbon out of the atmosphere. So they're all trying to get to the same end goal of you know stopping the water from spilling into the bathroom, but they're taking uh, two different approaches to do it. Um, so here we're gonna look at the pulling of the carbon out of the atmosphere. And so America's forests currently remove about 12% of our carbon pollution every year. As the trees get bigger, they kind of store that carbon in their woody biomass. And research has indicated we could potentially almost double that uh, to get another 10% of our emissions uh, pulled out of the atmosphere by trees with some good uh, forest policy solutions. And of that increase, about half of the potential stems from what we call reforestation, uh, which is basically planting trees where there used to be forests a long time ago before the forests got cut down. And so uh, this chart kind of gets to that point. It's from a paper published a few years back that was kind of quantifying all the different natural climate solution potential in the United States. Uh, so you can see the big bars on the left here are reforestation and forest management. Our forest management is basically when we harvest trees, doing it in a way that has less impact on the surrounding trees and the surrounding soil so they can continue to store uh, lots of carbon. And then again, reforestation is replanting areas that used to be forests. And you can see there's three different categories of that and kind of the big bar on the bottom. Uh, it's called silvopasture which is planting trees on areas that are used for pasture land um, because we have a lot of land that a long time ago used to be forest and then the forest got cut down and now we use them to graze livestock. And that's especially in the Southeast where it's also getting quite hot. And so you could plant some trees on that pasture land, still use it as pasture, but kind of have this dual purpose. And then the trees would also provide shade for those livestock that are increasingly being affected by extreme heat waves. And so it kind of has a dual benefit of protecting the livestock's health while also pulling more carbon out of the atmosphere. And so uh, anybody on the CCL staff will tell you I am slightly obsessed with silvopasture as a great climate solution. I think you can see there's also a big chunk of uh, carbon we could pull out of the atmosphere by planting more urban trees, trees in uh, cities and um, metropolitan areas. And that has lots of good benefits as well. Um, and uh, that's because not only do they pull carbon out of the atmosphere, but trees also improve air quality. And again, they provide those cooling services from shade and uh, releasing water into the air and cooling the surrounding environment, which is especially important in our cities as we continue to get these worse and worse heat waves, uh, more extreme heat events, and especially in cities, you have lots of asphalt and pavement that kind of absorbs and keeps the heat in that area and so cities particularly get really hot during heat waves and so uh, the more green spaces you have and the more shade that they provide um, the more resilient they make the cities against those worsening extreme heat waves so this raises the issue that i mentioned before it's called tree equity uh, which the issue there is that research has shown that communities of color in the united states have 33 percent less tree canopy than predominantly white neighborhoods and poor communities have 41% less tree canopy than wealthy neighborhoods in the United States. 
And you know, research shows that uh, in communities that have more trees and more green spaces, they have lower mortality rates because, again, they have all these benefits that come with having uh, trees and green spaces around, the shade, the cooling, uh, the other mental and physical health benefits. And so we can address uh, both these problems of uh, planting more trees that will pull more carbon out of the atmosphere and reducing this tree inequity problem uh, by planting them in communities where they're particularly lacking to resolve uh, this tree inequity issue. And so it's kind of a potential win-win solution there. And you can kind of check out what the tree equity looks like in your community with this uh, great tool called the Tree Equity Score tool. Uh, it's at treeequityscore.org, which has lots and lots of E's in a row, which is kind of a cool URL. Uh, but you can see a picture here. Basically, you type in uh, your city and it will show you like the green means the tree equity is better the yellower tells you that the tree equity is lacking in that particular neighborhood and that can give you an idea uh, where it would be good to plant trees uh, to address this tree inequity issue uh, i live in the sacramento area so here's an example of what sacramento's tree equity score looks like um, so you can see there's you know certain neighborhoods where you have lots of trees um, in certain areas where they're lacking. Some of these are more industrial than others, um, but uh, you can kind of see like, here's what the score is based on. It's like uh, how many the percentage of people of color and the unemployment rate. So, so taking wealth into account, uh, health risks, temperatures and things like that. And trying to calculate like, what should the tree cover be? Uh, what should it actually be and what is it? And so what is the, um, the lack uh, of equity there? So it's kind of a cool tool. And it'll give you an idea, like, where are the neighborhoods in your region, in your city, that are particularly lacking and can use some tree cover to address this tree, tree inequity issue. So uh, just to close out, because I'm a nerdy person, I got to close on a chart. Uh, so here we're looking at a chart of U.S. greenhouse gas emissions uh, since 2005. You can see they've gone down, but gone down a little slowly as coal has been replaced by cleaner electricity sources. Uh, this right here, this dotted line, is our Paris commitment to cut greenhouse gases 50% below 2005 levels by 2030. And so this is kind of the track that we're on right now. Uh, if we don't pass permitting reform, just having passed the Inflation Reduction Act, we'll get some benefit from that. Uh, but it'll still leave us almost halfway short of our Paris commitments. But then if we can get permitting reform passed and unlock all of the potential emissions reductions from the Inflation Reduction Act, that will get us to somewhere around 40% emissions cuts by 2030, which is closer, closing that gap uh, to our Paris commitment, but not quite there yet. But if we can then pass a carbon price, which again, will get at every source of greenhouse gas emissions in the economy, that would get us the rest of the way to meeting our Paris commitments. Uh, but then we're not gonna stop there. If we can get some good, healthy forest solutions passed, that would get us another nice chunk of emissions being pulled out of the atmosphere from those trees that we're planting. And then if we can educate people about building efficiency and electrification, get people to install those heat pumps and you know, solar panels and electric cars and all that, that we can get another chunk of emissions uh, reduced and we can blow right past our Paris commitments, get to 60% cuts by 2030 if we can implement CCL's full policy agenda, uh, which is a big task, but that is what we're trying to do, we're trying to be ambitious and get all of these uh, climate solutions implemented and be very successful in our uh, climate efforts. So huge gratitude to you for being here on the line.
Dana, thank you for your preparedness, for adding a bit of humor to some very data, actually, they're not even very data-oriented slides. So Dana, kudos to you. I love that new GIF, GIF thing that you added with the bathtub falling on that dude. So love that. Um, if you do have any questions, um, you can email Dana, dana.nucitelli at citizensclimate.org. That's N-U-C-C-I-T-E-L-L-I. Or you can find him on Twitter. Um, and if you are nerdy or nerd curious, head on over to the Nerd Corner, cclusa.org forward slash nerd dash corner and have all sorts of nerdy fun over there. And that is all, folks. Have a wonderful rest of your evening. Thank you for listening to this episode of Citizens Climate Lobby's training program. You can tune into more episodes anywhere podcasts are available. Inspired by what you heard today? Join Citizens Climate Lobby to advocate for bipartisan climate solutions. Go to community.citizensclimate.org to find more trainings, resources, your local chapter, national action teams, discussion forums, and more. Be sure to like our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Citizens Climate. We also invite all of our listeners to subscribe to our YouTube channel for more inspiration. Like what you hear? Recommend us to your friends and make sure to give us a five-star rating. It helps us show up on other listeners' feeds. Feel free to pass on any suggestions for future episodes in the comments as well. And together, we are creating the political will for a livable world.